This is the Hack the Future podcast, the human stories behind courage, purpose, and imagination. Join your host, Terrence Mowry, who will guide you on the journey of reimagining the world as we know it. Chica, welcome to Hack the Future. How are you today? I'm really well, Terrence. Uh, it's sunny Great. here in Seattle, so always oh, a jealous. good day. <laughs> I'm, I'm so jealous. It's, uh, it's you know, the autumn has officially started here in the oh. UK. And I understand you've lived in London. I did. I used to live in London uh, for nearly five years. So really feels like home. I do miss the autumn oh. in London, I will say. Um, so, yes. yes. <laughs> Now, let's talk about your brilliant new book, Inclusion on Purpose. There's shocking uh, statistics out there, one that I wanted to share straight away with our listeners, uh, and it's one that I heard you speak about very uh, eloquently, was a McKinsey study, 2021. Mm -hmm. In the US, 62% of white men hold senior leadership positions. 20% of white women hold around 20% and only 4% of women of color. That's right, yes. Tell me more about about this and, and the framing of why you wrote this important book, Inclusion on Purpose. You know, Terence, I'm really glad you picked out this statistic. Indeed, yes. I was able to find some really interesting research which backed up the anecdotal evidence. I was seeing the conversations I was having uh, certainly as a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner, when I would mm. meet clients and I would speak especially with people from what I call underestimated backgrounds. And, and that includes, yes. you know, really a wide swath. That's That includes certainly women of color or non-white mm. presenting women, uh, people mm. from religious minority backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. I would yes. hear a lot of, you know, I'm having a really tough experience. I feel like I can't have these conversations with my mm. manager or the leaders at the organization. And then I'd mm. speak with some leaders who would really deny that there was a problem. You know, they'd say, we're, we're, we're having an annual mm. diversity conference or we are mm. inviting all these people, um, you know, to to sit on our boards or whatever it is and, you know, and not really have any true power or decision-making uh, power. Mm. Um, and so I would, you know, I would, I would hear this mismatch fairly often. Mm. And I think you can't deny the data. There is yes. an over-representation even and within the same study, when you see the number of, for example, white men at entry mm. level, and then there's a disproportionate representation when we get to the C-suite, that's also McKinsey data. Yes. And when, yes. when you look at the entry level of women, and then especially women of color, especially mm. women as a whole come in at you know, yes. 50, 50 plus percent at entry level. But when you wow. move up to that, even, even from senior manager to VP, there's a huge drop off for mm. uh, non-white um, women of color. And so what I really mm. hope we can do is look at this data, um, mm. be honest about the, the yes. problems, be honest, you know, and many of us have been taught to and socialized to mm. not talk about race, not talk about even gender equity mm. in, in the real sense, right? In the mm. real sense of what it means to get to an organization, to to move up an organization, get to a very senior level, but what is the sort of Faustian bargain you need to do mm. 
to get to that stage. And I think once we start having these really uncomfortable, really honest conversations, when yeah. once we can become more aware of it, that's when true change happens. This radiates so much with me. One of my frustrations is that I think sometimes leaders get obsessed with buzzwords and they, mm. they think, okay, the more I say agile or the more I say uh, diversity, equity and inclusion, the more we're competent to do it. And of course, <laughs> it, it's, very, it's very cosmetic and there's no substance and there's no real change. and There's no uncomfortable conversations. And this is such a critical conversation for our listeners to think about, which is what are the, the, the stretch conversations to do what Daniel Kahneman speaks about, which is often we're blind to our own blindness, these blind yes. spots, which you speak about as well in your book. Yes, yes, we really are. And then I want to just add to that how mm. much we, you know, we expect other people to fix the problems. So there are a couple of things I yes. see. I see a lot of good intention. I really do. And it, and of course that warms mm. my heart because I remember a time when I was in, in corporate America about a decade mm. ago, having a really hard time and not being able to name what it feels mm. like, what, what I was going through when like I was, the, when I, the language, the language, the description. Yes. absolutely. Like what mm. it means to walk into a conference room and be the only one there, you know, to feel yes. what many women of color I interviewed for inclusion on purpose said, feeling mm. like you're both hyper visible because you're the only one. So you're different and yes. invisible at the same time. The you'll, same time. you'll mm. make a point and you know, you're, you, you may, you may actually, you may even have the job title. It may be mm. actually even your role to, you know, speak up in that moment and you still are not heard. And then when you sort yes. of, when you superimpose the concept, which, you know, I know we're both, um, yes. we, we both really admire Amy, mm. Dr. Amy Edmondson. When we look at yes. the work on psychological safety, good ideas can surface mm. from anywhere, everywhere, mm. no matter who mm. you are, no matter what level you're at, you know, it mm. could be critical, it could be life-saving and to then not feel the psychological mm. safety to speak up is, uh, you know, again, frankly, yes. I think organizations are losing out. Leaders are certainly losing out, but also us as individuals who find ourselves yes. as the first, the only one of the few, we're also really struggling. And you know, this segues really well into some research that you, you've mentioned, which is Duke University researchers really looking at this movement that started, you know, seven, eight years ago, the lean in yes. movement. Do our listeners remember that? And Tell me more, because I love this, I love this idea of debunking things that sometimes people take for granted. Tell me more about the, the research, first of all, and this, the, the sort of the idea around the risks of leaning in. Yeah. And Terence, this is something where, you know, hearing a diversity of perspectives can yes. really inform and bring you a much more nuanced perspective on any very, you know, uh, trendy movement of the time. So I remember yes. reading, I remember reading Lean In. I, in fact, wrote a book review for uh, my alma mater, LSE's blog. You know, they asked me to do a mm. book review. And already I expressed, you know, I, I didn't want to be too, uh, you know, I didn't want to be too incendiary. And I and I did want mm. to talk about, yes, indeed, this book is, is great in, in it, at least addressing or at least surfacing the gender inequality that exists in the workplace. So I was really pleased yeah. that at least we were having that conversation. 
But I also mm. was talking with so many, again, women from underestimated backgrounds, especially women mm. of color, women mm. uh, who have disabilities, women with other, you know, with who are immigrants or migrants and mm. et cetera, et cetera. And, and what I would hear again and again is I, this doesn't really apply to me. You know, mm. I, I lean in, I advocate mm. for myself. I've gone through so much in my life to build resilience and raising my hand and speaking up and speaking out. And I'm not mm. heard. In fact, there are times where I am silenced. Mm. And that I think was the nuance that I was hearing. And on the other hand, yes. you know, in the more corporate environment, I was hearing, oh, lean in is wonderful. And it's, it's making waves. And, you know, the mm. reason why gender inequality exists is because women aren't leaning in and they aren't raising their hands. So I really mm. was seeing, you know, these two different conversations happening side by side without mm. that intersection. And so the study mm. you mentioned, I'm so glad mm. Duke University did it. And this is what's wonderful about taking a research-backed approach to yes. things, because what I was, you know, all those conversations I was having when I saw the Duke University research, you know, of how mm. damaging lean-ins you know, narrative was and how yes. much participants of all genders. And, and I, and I mm. really want to say, when we talk about gender bias, I'm not saying, you know, someone who identifies as a man is doing this, is doing this terrible sort of injustice mm. to people who identify mm. as women. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we're all mm. conditioned to mm. have gender bias and it takes very mm. active, intentional work to undo that gender bias and racial mm. bias and the conditioning we've um, achieved, uh, we've received. So mm. just, just quickly to wrap that up, the study really yes, found yes. that when um, participants of all genders read mm. messages from Lean In, they actually blamed women or they actually felt like gender inequality needed to be solved mm. by individual acts that women took rather than looking at the systemic issues, which we know are plentiful. It resonates so strongly. I remember um, speaking in Hong Kong a couple of years ago before the pandemic, I met the CEO of uh, one of the world's biggest banks and his name was John. And he said to me, he said, look, on the FTSE 100, there are 20 CEOs whose first name begins with John. That's right. Which is, which, which is more than all the um, women CEOs. And just that statistic was mm -hmm. absolutely, completely shocking. I wanted to ask you, in terms of structural bias and structural stupidity, and I don't mean <laughs> to exaggerate this word, but this, there seems to be a lot of it out there. And leaders don't seem to be um, talking about it. What are your thoughts and reactions to th this idea of structural bias? Yeah, this is such a mm. good question. And mm. it's, again, an uncomfortable response yes. because mm. the reality is there is structural bias baked into every single mm. facet of corporate mm. life today and i just mm. what i wrote in the book is really just scratching the surface if i'm being mm. honest right so mm. i remember i mean from i i cite examples of how some of the words that are used in job listings um mm. can actually attract men and 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 repel mm. women from applying and making mm. those terms more gender neutral finding 
alternatives for those terms, for those words used in the job listings, actually does not have a material impact on men applying, right? So men continue to apply, but it actually impacts women from applying more often, right? It actually encourages women to apply because those words used are gender neutral. So it's not a zero sum game. It's not saying if I replace the word analytical with another word that is, you know, more appealing to women again, because of the way we've been socialized. What I'm not doing is then saying, you know, men, you don't apply. It's only women. It's what you're doing is just making it more inclusive and accessible to all. So that's a really tiny example of that all the way up to, you know, and when I was a business reporter, I would speak Mm -hmm. to a lot of folks, uh, you know, who were CEOs, leaders in general, and then, and then looking to sort of, and talking to board members, especially, uh, especially Mm -hmm. corporate board members. And what was really interesting is, again, how much of the processes right at the top, when you are staffing for the, you know, for the C-suite, for the CEO role, and certainly for board members, how much of it uh, depended on just who you knew, you know, who your mm. network was. And uh, mm. there wasn't even really very much a, a process, a formal process. Mm. And, and this is and this is where it gets mm. tricky, because I'll hear, I remember initially, when I started writing about these biases, I'd hear a lot of no, but we work at this, you know, fortune 500 company or yeah. FTSE 100 company. And we have mm. a very strict process. And we do this, 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 this. But when you drill down, that's where that when you look, when you talked about the stories, right? And especially yes. when you talk to people, how did you actually get this job? You know, how, mm. did, how did this actually come about? How did this opportunity come about? How did you get tapped for your mm. uh, promotion or for this mm. big, high, you know, this, this very visible job or visible mm. project that you are doing? And when you d- drilled into the stories, that's when you would hear the truth. You mm. know, many people in dominant group, um, mm. you know, with dominant group identities would get yes. tapped on the shoulder. And many people would say, oh, I never thought that I would have this. Yeah, I never thought that I'd be the CEO or I never aspired mm. for this role. And then you would speak again with, you know, with people from underestimated backgrounds. And again, specifically mm. for my book, Women of Color, yes. who yes. who said, you know, who literally, they said, I have had a, probably a 20 year plan right? Mm. I, I went to the best universities, I got mm. all the job experience that I needed. And I am still blocked from reaching those highest mm. positions. So again, there's a mismatch. And again, if we don't, you know, have a very honest conversation about it, we're not even willing to accept that, unfortunately, the myth of meritocracy is mm. rampant in our workforce today, if we're not willing to have that conversation, we're not going to be, again, be able to make change. When you reflect on the progress that companies are making around the world, you know, and, and if you were to give a score, and I know it's very subjective, <laughs> oh, gosh. Where, but how, how, how is humanity doing? I mean, mm. are we completely behind here on the curve? Are we making some level of progress? Or actually, are, are, are many leaders uh, still choosing to be blind to their own blindness uh, and just overwhelmed by BMI, which uh, Michele Zanini of Humanocracy defines mm-hmm. as bureaucratic mass index, just too much complexity? Mm. Such a good question. Because I'm a I'm an eternal, you know, optimist, cautiously mm. optimistic. 
I really choose to look at the leaders who are doing great work. And mm. so, and, and I, and when I say leaders, I try really hard not to look at people just in the media, you know, because there are some yes. media leaders who are well-known household names and, you know, they do a lot of posturing, but I think of the actual leaders that I work with a lot of, you know, many that I, you know, due to confidentiality can't mm. state their names, yes, but what I find that is really encouraging to me is how mm. much more effort there is to, to again, face up to mm. those hard truths. You know, I got yes. here because I have privilege. I got mm. here because I knew someone. I got here mm. because when I speak in a meeting, no matter how half-formed my idea is, it's mm. heard. And, and mm. so how do I, A, face up to that? It's, it feels uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good. Um, it's mm. hard. I, I haven't been trained. None of us have really been trained to face up to those privileges and advantages, which is mm. what something, you know, which is, which is the approach I take. You know, when I write yes. on these issues, I try very hard to veer away from, you know, oh, I've, I've experienced a lot of disadvantage. I've experienced a lot of challenge. Of course, mm. that nuance informs the perspective I have. But a larger part of my perspective is I also come from a lot of privilege. I am university yes. educated. You know, mm -hmm. I haven't had to take out, you know, crippling student loans to, to get to where mm -hmm. I'm at, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, when more leaders take that view, what I'm finding is that is, again, where I'm seeing radical change being made. Mm. And to to address sort of the BMI perspective, it's funny yes. over here, we think of BMI as you know sort of the body mass index health <laughs> score. So when you said that for a moment, I was like, hmm, interesting. Um, but, mm. but when I think of the BMI perspective, there are indeed structural issues and biases, which yes. you addressed earlier. But my hope is that more individual leaders can look at where they can make change, where they can yes. take responsibility, you know, and that's where that intentionality is really important. And that often comes yes. down to the ways that are not going to give you media attention or mm. maybe even an award or whatever it is for being more diverse, mm. equitable, and inclusive. Actually, it comes down to those small moments and interactions. It's, it's, mm -hmm. I'll give you an example, another uncomfortable yes. one, Terrence. Yes. It's you saying, mm. I have this podcast that is listened mm. to globally, and mm. I have literally an unlimited amount of choices mm. on who I want to feature, on whom I want to feature, yes. and whom I want to, yes. you know, ensure that they get publicity or their book mm. is read. And you yes. intentionally made a choice, right? Mm. And you said, mm. I, I, want to I want to feature this idea. This is an important idea. My voice yes. has influence because of all the credentials and everything else yes. that I have. Who mm. am I going to bring along with me on this mm. journey? And so yes. if more of us do this, if more leaders mm. think of it that way, rather than mm. staffing the project with, I'm a John, I'm going to go and, and go and ask another John to join me on this high visibility project, mm. it's saying, no, let me, maybe there's a Ruchika out there who could do a job, do this job just as yes. well. Maybe they could, they could work together. This is absolutely key. And I wanted to turn a spotlight and build upon the momentum that we have here, which is, first of all, I love the title of your book and for our listeners benefit inclusion on purpose 
an intersectional approach to creating a culture of belonging at work. Tell me more about the, the thinking behind the word intersectional and mm. sort of deliberate intentionality. Why is this important? I'm so glad you asked this question. And mm. I want to pay homage to and really squarely place the framing of intersectionality, which, by the way, is not a very new concept. In 1989, yes. Professor Kimberly Crenshaw really mm. observed that for Black women, um, the experience in the workplace was negative and compounded not just by the gender bias they faced, but the intersection of racial mm. bias they faced. And she actually mm. had a, you know, she she looked at in she looked at a very big case that was happening right mm. at, at that moment. Um, I believe it was at General Motors, where mm. the the black women who worked at that organization were facing gender bias that the white women were not facing and the mm. black men at the organization were not facing. And there was no legal framework. Uh, Professor Crenshaw is mm. a legal scholar. There was no legal framework to address what mm. happens when you face that intersection of racial and gender bias. And, mm. and I would say for me, that is one of the most key leadership ideas in in the world and of course you know i'm glad that now again we're discussing it now all these mm. years later when actually yes. i think what professor crenshaw was saying was groundbreaking all the way back in 1989 and, and years mm. before that and so yes. what i what i'm hoping as more of us mm. can recognize that if you just turn to the experiences of people in power with privilege who have dominant group status and you mm. ask them are you, is the workplace good for you? Are you, do you feel welcome? Do you feel mm. like you belong? Do you feel like our culture, uh, mm. are, are we making the sort of strides forward that I would like to, you know, that, that we believe we are. If you ask people in mm. the dominant group, if that's how they feel, you're mm. only going to get a very, I would say performative and certainly a very yes. surface level view of what's mm. really going on in an organization for mm. us to make change for us to, get the real pulse check on what's going on we have to take an intersectional approach mm. and that means making sure we ask folks in the most marginalized intersections of the workforce what has their experience been and majority of the time that means women of color specifically darker skinned black women um, who then carry other marginalized identities. And once you solve for those challenges, I promise you, I've seen it happen. Everyone benefits. And actually, Terrence, if, if you don't mind, um, I wanted to give you a quick example of this. So I worked with a client who, um, you know, it's a very meeting heavy culture. I did write about this in the book as well. And um, it, what they found is, you know, the loudest voice in the room would dominate meetings, right? And if you if you were loud, if you were, if you sort of were, if you had status and privilege, you were the ones dominating the meetings. And when we started to put in meeting norms in place that were more inclusive, that were more thoughtful, that really give an opportunity for everyone to speak up and share their ideas. What we started finding is even white men who identified as introverts, right? That was the only difference. But white men who said, I'm introverted, but I'm benefiting from this too. For the first time, 
in a long time, I feel comfortable speaking up. And it reminds me of some other fascinating research that you have uh, shared as well. Dr. Catherine Phillips, mm-hmm. three groups coming together to solve a mystery. And what, what were some of the um, insights from that research that uh, Dr. Catherine Phillips looked at? Yes, the late, great Dr. Phillips, a wonderful, yeah, yeah. wonderful yes. researcher who really mm. brought in so much perspective and just, um, mm. you know, just just wanted to take a moment just to share, you know, the yes. the level of courage it takes for academics mm. who identify as women of color, especially black women to mm. do this work. I have seen firsthand the types of blocking and challenges that they mm. uh, receive. So, uh, you know, mm. Dr. Phillips's work, that that research piece specifically was, was really powerful. very mm. powerful. And essentially, you know, if we were to boil it down really quickly, mm. what she looked at is when you wanted to solve a puzzle. So if you want to mm. do something that's complex and nuanced mm. and global, not mm. unlike the challenges we're facing yes. in the world exactly. today, homogenous teams did not arrive at the correct answer. And the reason for that, the reason for that is we just assume that people who look like us will have the same worldview as us, and therefore we don't need to share all the information. So there's a lot of assumptions. Whereas in racially mixed teams, they were more likely to solve the puzzle faster and correctly because of that sort of over communication right and and a lot of yes. researchers and experts on communication say especially right now especially in vuca times right in very complex mm. times what we find is the more communication the more touch mm. points you have you know especially when we all went virtual uh during yes. the pandemic you need to have over-communication to some extent. The problem we see in our workforce today is there's a lot of under-communication and and assumptions. And so Mm -hmm. Dr. Phillips's work found that when you work with people who especially are racially different from you, Mm -hmm. you would go Mm -hmm. out of your way to overshare, share more information, which would help you Mm -hmm. solve the puzzle. So I think we can really take away a lot from this research. I'm absorbing so much right now. And for our listeners, I wanted to you know, tap onto your wisdom and your insights in terms of activation mm. and share you know, share some key words and get get your thoughts in terms of, for listeners around the world, for leaders around the world, whatever their position, looking to really uh, launch and scale and sustain and bake in. Um, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion in a very human-led way. First of all, I wanted to ask you: culture fit or <laughs> culture ad? <laughs> yes, uh, one of the most exclusionary ways we see bias show up in today's workforce, and especially in our processes, is through looking for culture fit. And what mm-hmm. that often does is both, you know, very intentionally and sometimes inadvertently leaves out people who are different. So if your organization Mm. is largely male, largely white, a culture Mm. fit, you know, certainly then ends up being, you know, having people from those backgrounds uh, more overrepresented. So culture ad is the way forward. Another one, cultivate cultural humility 
or cultural competency? So I really love this question because I Mm. deeply believe in cultural humility and I've actually gone through this in my own life. So I present as an Indian woman. I was born and brought Mm. up in Singapore. And so when people see me, um, they automatically assume, and of course, my name is Ruchika, which is an Indian Sanskrit name. So the first, uh, you know, when folks see me, the first sort of question is, oh, of course, you you must love Indian food. And, you know, this is, and I'm using a benign example. Yes. yes. And my, my identity and my acculturation in Singapore has had a much larger impact on my habits and my behaviors and even my food preferences than my identity as an Indian woman. So that, so again, cultural competency would be someone looks at me and they say, of course, you know, you're going to, you're going to like Indian food because, or you're going, that's going Mm -hmm. to be what's comfort or home food for you. And cultural humility is saying, I'm going to wait for you to tell me and I'm going to, and I'm sort of just mm. going to observe and learn um, mm. rather than having, you know, coming in with the assumption that I know what's best, right? Yes, and and yes. so this is a super benign example. It can very much be extended much mm. beyond this in the workplace context. But again, it's yes. really not putting people into a box. I love that. And it leads to another insight, which uh, I really uh, enjoyed, which was, Fiction or non-fiction for building empathy? <laughs> oh, this is hard. See, because then I'm, you know, then I'm, I'm kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing myself a service, and I'm not doing you a service either by, as, as non-fiction writers. But um, indeed, it, there is very strong research that to mm. to to help us build empathy with people from different backgrounds. It's really important to consume fiction. And that could, you know, again, be books, certainly written by people yes. from those communities, writing about that community. It could be theater, it could be film. Yes. But it's really, what that does is it helps us lay down our defenses a little bit. You know, if, if mm. we hear about real people's stories, uh, sometimes that can make us feel really defensive or uncomfortable or focus much more on our intention. Whereas if there's a fictionalized account of, of the way things are, um, you know, that can really help us build empathy. There's a Dr. Adam Galinsky at Columbia and also a Dr. Jamil Zaki at Stanford mm. who are doing some really interesting work. And I know that, you know, you've, you've been focusing on this as well, this sort of inverse relationship between privilege and empathy. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> it's funny. I was thinking of one of my clients who during the pandemic, when we were sort of year one into it, um, mm. we I was asked to advise, you know, how should we be thinking about coming back to the office? Because mm. the, um, you know, the leaders at our organization who are disproportionately white and male are ready to come back. You know, they, mm. they um, they're very ready to come back into an in-office environment and they are you know, sick and tired of being at home and they think productivity and collaboration is best in person. Um, mm. And this was, you know, this was quite early into the pandemic and mm. people who, everyone else, you know, and especially people from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds at the organization were absolutely mm. not ready to go back, right? Caregivers mm. and people who worried about health, That's who, uh, and, and there was a huge sort of group of people. 
And, yes. and that's really, that really got me thinking about, especially mm. Dr. Jamil Zaki's research on how mm. there is that inverse relationship between privilege and empathy, because folks who were, who were very privileged, who just essentially were getting bored at you know, about work, yeah, working from home, mm. were, were not being able to see the perspective, were not being able to empathize mm with what it's like if you are the primary caregiver or you don't have the resources to hire caregivers and schools are closed, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we all very much need to, the more privilege we have. And again, I try really hard, even with the privileges that I have, not to superimpose my perspective and viewpoints and rather gather other perspectives before I make a decision. Would an analogy be almost like a beginner's mindset, deep listening, that type of approach? A hundred percent. In fact, now when people ask, you know, when people call me an expert, I Mm. actually go out of my way to correct them and say, there's Mm. no way I'm an expert. Mm. I continually learn. I'm really happy to see the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion evolve. I I write in Mm. the book about what, um, what it's like when I'm with my students who are Gen Z, who are Generation mm. Z, who yes. uh, who are very comfortable with, for example, introducing themselves with their pronouns. They'll immediately say, yes. you know, my name is yes. so-and-so and here are my pronouns. And for mm. me, born and brought up in Singapore, you know, um, it, it was it was quite a mindset shift, you know, and I kept thinking, why do I need to keep doing this? Why do I need to keep introducing myself with my pronouns? Especially in my classroom, I set the rules. And uh, it's, you know, it's having, it's really having that beginner's mindset and learning that times are are going to continually evolve. And why not have a beginner's mindset so that more people can feel uh, like they belong, like their voices are heard, that they're being valued. Mm. Why not do our parts to to make sure that's a reality mm. for all? We're coming to our final five minutes together. And what, what are you doing in terms of the, the next kind of six to 12 months? Oh, great question. <laughs> um, I will say I, maybe it's a little more radical. I would love to say, mm. you know, I'm working on these amazing new things and please look mm. out for so-and-so. I'll actually say that for me, the hope is that I can get more rest um, doing this yes, book and you. and promoting it. I, I really yes. dislike self-promotion is yes. a very exhausting, uh, exhausting yes. you know, process. Some people love it and I certainly don't. I'm a writer by trade. So whether yes. it's, uh, you know, having having to do videos about it or whether mm. it's speaking in a large public gathering, mm. um, it's taken a lot out of me. So my hope is, yes. you know, this time next year, uh, and hopefully we'll definitely chat before that, but yes. this time next year, if we were to have this conversation, I would love to say, Terence, I got mm. a lot of rest. I was able mm. to you know, spend time with my family, um, read Mm. a lot more than I have, you know, it it should never be your only your own voice and your own perspective that you are listening to or reading, which I think actually often happens when you have a new book out. Yes. (laughs) So changing that. It is such a frenetic, (laughs) frenetic um, experience when you write the book and then you, and then you're, you know, you, you, you're expected to promote it and you obviously want to promote it and the, the demands on your energy and your well-being and, and traveling and the, the, the sort of intensity, intensification of the life goes up. And I, I met a hundred year old lady recently who was born 1922 
And I wow. asked her, you know, you're, you're 100 years old. Um, what's your secret? And she said, rest. She said, you've got to unplug. You've got to be deliberate with uh, slowing down. We know this, but there's a big knowing doing gap. She said, you've got to say no and have a no strategy. That's right. That's mm. right. And we don't talk about this enough, you know, for us to no. be better leaders, for us to be better learners. Mm. Um, that's so important. And, and I'm, and I, and so that's, you know, that's what I'm going to try and work on, but I, I also, you know, I hope you hold me accountable to this because I will do because my tendency is to say a lot of yes as well. (laughs) We are all guilty of that. I can relate to that as well. What would be some final calls to action to square Mm. the circle today? Mm -hmm. A couple of things are good intentions alone Mm. don't result in good impact. So I would say that's probably the the most important thing. And that includes, you know, mistakes I've made where I focused much more on my intention and me trying to be a good person rather than the outcome. So I'd say that's really important. Um, The second is the importance of consuming perspectives, whether that's media, whether that's fiction, whether that's podcasts, whether that's, you know, other uh, content, as we call it these days, Um, Mm. but really seek out perspectives that are different than your own. It will be transformative. Um, So, so that for me, those, those things are really important. And then lastly, you know, Privilege doesn't have to mean you feel shame or you feel Mm. defensive. Um, It's Mm. not your fault, but it's certainly your responsibility to then create a much more uh, inclusive and accessible society and workforce for all. Thank you so much for today. I can't wait for our next follow-up conversation within the next 12 months because this requires uh, continuous uh, attention and commitment and sustainability in order to turn the talk and the rhetoric into into reality i think absolutely thank you so much terence for being open to this conversation and uh yeah i've really enjoyed having this chat with you for sure thank you so much uh Brigitte toshian author of a brilliant new book inclusion on purpose thank you for joining me today thank you terence